Um, good evening, everyone. I uh, apologize for, uh, for, for this. Vikings, right? Isn't that what we all were thinking about? Vikings. Vikings was a series, there was a, a series produced by History not, not that long ago. Who of you saw that, that series, Vikings? Okay, a couple of you. I, uh, I, I didn't watch the whole thing. But I remember an episode that really struck me, and that was uh, uh, one where they were raiding, and I presume this happened quite often in the, in the series, but one where they were raiding this, this monastery. And I think it's pretty early. It might even be the pilot, uh, the, the first episode. So they, they, they come, and they, they do their Viking things, jump off the boat, get ready for action, and then they run into this monastery, and then they just encounter these monks uh, praying. And I find it very bizarre, and, and I know this is a little bit gruesome, but it's, it's also kind of funny, dare I say that, where you can see the Viking is like, very, is this guy really not going to fight back? And he just like, like takes his sword, what? Oh, wow, okay, well, that was easy. And um, eventually they get into this chapel, and they see some of the, the riches, candles, stands, and crosses, and whatever. And there's just this fascinating interaction that takes place between the, the Vikings, where they say... Um, uh, uh, is, is, this, is this their God? And the God is nailed to a cross? Their, their God is dead. What good is a dead God? He's not like Odin, who's alive and powerful. What's wrong with, with this God? And it didn't make any sense to them. And another series that I, that I do follow, I often would like to preface these things by saying I don't watch a lot of series because I want to create the impression that I, I, I read Shakespeare at night. But, but I, I don't watch a lot of series. But The Lost Kingdom is, is one that I, that I do follow. And one thing that I find interesting is that throughout the show, even though it's very heavy-handed and they're trying to, to give a, a few, I, I think, unnecessary punches towards the Saxons, the Christians, uh, one thing that does come out is that the Danes or the Vikings are really perplexed as to these the Christian virtues of chastity. It doesn't make any sense to them. Forgiveness doesn't make any sense to them. And then the fact that the God that they are, uh, that, that, that they are celebrating, that they are worshipping, is, is dead. He's on a cross. Or at least that is the image that is held up in, in, in all the sanctuaries. Now, uh, the, the Vikings, I mean, they only came around, uh, I'm going to say the 10th century there and thereabout. But from the very beginning, Christianity was strange. Christianity was weird. And you've got this guy, Pliny the Younger, and he was working in modern-day Turkey. He was a governor there of a, of a district. And he's writing a letter to the emperor back then, Trajan, the emperor Trajan. And uh, he says the following. He's writing about these Christians that he needs to deal with. He says, I discovered nothing else but depraved excessive superstition. The sum of their error had been that they were accustomed to meet on a fixed day before dawn and sing hymns to Christ as a god and bind themselves to not do crime, commit fraud, theft, to remain trustworthy and to practice chastity. When this was over, they would assemble again and partake in food. For many persons of every age, every rank and also both sexes are and will be endangered. For the contagion of the superstition 
has spread not only to the cities, but also to the villages and farms. <laughs> so here's Pliny the Younger, and he's very worried about they, they, they get together and they sing to a dead god, and then they talk about practicing sexual self-control, being good citizens, being super kind to each other and to other people. What, what are we going to do about them? And then you, you can actually see Trajan's response, and, and it is, look, if they admit they're Christian, then we can kill them, but if not, then don't kill them. Um, so I don't think we recognize the strangeness, the peculiarity of Christianity. We've lost that because we've been swimming in 2,000 years of, of, of Christianity. But Paul, when he's writing his letter to the Corinthians, he is holding up this strangeness of the Christian faith. And, and, and this, is, this is pretty much the focus uh, on... Uh, in, in our passage this, this evening. So we are in 1 Corinthians chapter 18. I know that it's not a, <laughs> a great... Um, see, see, Lois, just switch from, phone, uh, from, from Bible to phone, and, and I don't blame you. So if you guys want to follow along, either or you can just listen well. So from uh, chapter 1, verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of the age? Has God, made, has, has God not made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than man. I want to stop there for a, uh, for, for a second. So Paul is introducing three types of people that you would have found in, in, in ancient Corinth. The first one is the wise. Here where he says, uh, where's the one who is wise? He's referring to the philosophers. Now, even to this day, we still celebrate these Greek philosophers, the Aristotles, the Plato's, the Socrates, and many, many more. So that's the first uh, grouping that he targets. And, and these guys were really trying to understand, and uh, rightfully so, and perhaps even impressively so, the mind of God and, and philosophy back then was considered pretty much the highest, uh, the highest rank that you, could, that you could achieve in society. If you were in business, if you were an entrepreneur, you were way there at the bottom. Like Elon Musk, those people, it's like, oh, shame, man. They have to, uh, they have to deal with money. But if you, if you thought about transcendental ideas and morality and God, I oh, mean, that was right up there. So it was the good old days. Um, so so, so these, uh, this is um, whom Paul is referring to when he talks about where is the wise. And then the next one he says, where's the scribe? That is referring, obviously, to the Jewish intellectual elite of the day. Um, these guys were very passionate about the law, obviously, and how to apply the law and how to live out the law. And, I mean, part of being a scribe, part of being a Jew back then and, and even today, if you're Orthodox, is to um, memorize eff effectively the whole Bible, as, uh, at least the first five books of, um, of what we 
of, of the Hebrew Bible. So, so you've got these groups. And then the third one, he says, where's the debater of this age? Now, back, back then, they had professional speakers, professional orators. And these guys would come in and they would spin stories. Uh, it's a little bit like, uh, I've told you before, I don't watch a lot of movies and series, right? But A Knight's Tale, have you guys watched The Knight's Tale? And then you've got this guy who introduces the knight every time. And uh, he's, he's, he's a very interesting character. So he says, ladies and gentlemen, let me introduce to you Ulrich von Lichtenstein. And then he rallies up the crowd. You guys know what I'm talking about? I really gave it everything, and uh, I'm not getting a lot of joy here. And uh, uh, so these, these orators would... Uh, maybe like our politicians today, um, I mean, you can decide what part of our society fits them best, but uh, they would be very eloquent and actually much hated by the philosophers because there wasn't a lot of content, but the delivery was, was always very, very impressive. So now you've got these great speakers, you've got these great philosophical minds, you've got these great Jewish minds, and in the middle of that, Paul says, I preach Christ and him crucified. I preach Christ and him crucified. Now that didn't make any sense to any of those three categories of people. None whatsoever. It was foolish. It was madness. As a matter of fact, when Paul describes it, he says, it is a stumbling block for Jews. And, and that word that is translated as stumbling block is scandalon. You guys can figure out what that is, right? It is an embarrassment. It is, uh, you've just ruined your reputation. It's an absolute scandal that, that God can become man and die on a cross. You've also got that Deuteronomy verse that says, cursed is the man who hangs from a tree. So to the Jewish mind, it didn't make any sense. And then for the Greeks, I mean, when they thought about their gods, then they thought about victory. They thought about Hercules. They thought about six-packs. They thought about um, Zeus and, and, and their pantheon that was, that was very strong. And now the person that is held up is somebody who dies on this instrument of torture. If you died on the cross, that was the epitome of weakness. It was not a show of strength whatsoever. So to these Greeks, it didn't make any sense either. But Paul is saying, in this very Greek massive uh, metropolis, he's saying, I preach Christ and him crucified. Now, he's, 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 very, he's very naughty because he's, he's, he's just leading with it from the beginning. And and, and, and this, like I said, would have been very difficult for his uh, first hearers to, to understand. But this is effectively what he's saying. He's saying, oh, you guys know that instrument of torture that you guys often use to just get rid of any, anything that's in your way? You guys know that, that cross thing? Well, here's what we want you to know. Is that you put a guy called Jesus in Palestine, this little dusty part of the Roman Empire, on a cross, and his movement is alive and well. As a matter of fact, he is alive and well, and he's directing this movement. And let's just think of all the powerful people that surrounded that event. What about Pontius Pilate? He's gone. Have any of you heard of Pontius Pilate? And they're going to say no. He says, exactly. What about the chief priest, Caiaphas? Can anybody tell me anything about Caiaphas? And the answer is no. What about King Herod, the great King Herod? 
Anybody here remember? Oh, yeah, I think he built a few things. fact of the matter is that the, the, the person that you guys know about, ask Pliny the Younger, ask Trajan, is these pesky Christians. This movement is alive and well, and it's spreading like a wildfire. But all of these powerful figures surrounding Jesus' death, they are gone. And Paul is saying, we preach Christ and him crucified. Now that was, according to Paul, a strong message. It's God's, it is, it is, uh, it's the strength of God's message, but it's also a very strange message. And we need to hold on to both of those things. Now I want to continue reading from verse 26. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, that the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. Now, I want to take us back to, to the beginning, to the first verse that we read, which is verse 18. The Greeks divided the world into two groups of people. What were they? Greek and barbarian. The Jews divided the world into two groups of people, Jew and, and Gentile. Christianity divided the world into two groups of people. And it's here in verse 18. And that is those who are perishing and those who are being saved. Those are the two groupings within the Christian understanding of the world. Now, I want you to notice one thing. Of the three versions listed, it's the only one that's got very little to do with you. It's got nothing to do with ethnicity. It's got nothing to do with your own achievement. It's got nothing to do with your, uh, with your race, with your civilization. It's got everything to do with your Savior. Now, now what, what, what we learn through the cross and what Paul is trying to say is, is that the reason why he's preaching Christ and him crucified is that this whole story is about God coming down, incarnating into this world, and he goes down and down and down and down, and he goes all the way down to the cross. And that moment when he's at the cross, when he's at his lowest, that is what we hold up, and that is what we are preaching. Now remember what we, remember the context of, of this passage. Gior last week spoke about the divisions that existed within the early church in Corinth. You had Apollos, and many people rallied around Apollos. He was presumably a good uh, Greek-thinking philosopher who became a Christian, and, uh, and, and he must have appealed to his Greek audience. Then you've got Peter, who's now referred to as Cephas in, in this passage, and he would have been very Jewish and would have brought that strong Jewish tradition to the conversation. And you've got these different groupings within Corinth saying, oh, we are with Cephas, or oh, we are with Apollos, or we are with Paul. And in the middle of that, you've got Paul saying, you idiots. Like, do you not understand the gospel? Do you not understand what happened? When we say we preach Christ and him crucified, 
then we are saying we're preaching a story where God came down and down and down and down and saved us here on this lonely cross. So for you to now try and brag about how you accessed him, whether it is through Apollos or whether it is through uh, uh, Peter or whether it's through Paul, it is entirely insignificant. You guys are fighting because you don't understand the gospel. Now, a modern version of that is, if you come in the mornings, and just on the opposite side of, of this very bizarre building that we call Pretoria Rugby Club, there's, a, a, there's another church called Presence Culture. And Presence Culture, they, they're a bit more hipster than us. You can, you can really see a lot of attractive people there, and definitely a lot more charismatic than we are. And, and I can imagine quite a few of them saying, ah, oh, yeah, that's this dialogue thing, they're very like intellectual and it's not very spiritual what's going on there. And I can definitely imagine, I don't even have to imagine, many of us thinking, oh, no, those guys, they are just happy clappy and there's, uh, there's not a lot of um, thinking going on there and uh, it's, there's not a lot of depth uh, over there. And you know what Paul would say to us? You idiot. <laughs> don't you know that the message of Christ and the, the message around which the church has been built is one of condescension, condescension. It's one of God coming down and down and down. So for us to now fight about these various ways in which we access him becomes really silly, becomes really insignificant. And as, as C.S. Lewis said, Christian, Christians cannot really be arrogant towards each other within denominations or towards other faith groups because, as Lewis, as, as Lewis said, uh, Christianity is basically one beggar telling another beggar where to get some food. You, you're not entitled. You didn't achieve anything. You come from this very humble place and you're just pointing to a place where there is some sustenance. Now, I... Last year, end of last year, I, I, I nearly died, or I'm, technically I did die. My, my heart stopped beating. I, actually, I don't know what's the technical definition of, of death, to be honest. But it, it, it wasn't good. And there was a very bright young doctor in Tembisa who shocked me a few times to bring me back to, to life on multiple occasions. And, and then they flew me over to a very equally smart uh, cardiologist who put a stent in my heart. And, and, uh, and that's mainly the reason why I'm, I'm, I'm here today. Now, reflecting on that, if I wanted to boast about that, I could, but I'm going to look very, very silly. So if I say, hey, you know, death is not, you know, not going to get me. No, no, no. I mean, they can try, but not this guy. Ah, cholesterol, pfft. Not, not, not me. I've, I've got a lid on this. I mean, you, you try harder next time, death. I mean, that's, it's, it's so stupid. I mean, I, I've, I was 100% saved by other people who used the best technology and their best training at their disposal to, to get me back. So for me to boast about the fact that I'm alive given that situation, would be very strange. It's a little bit like, it's a little bit like if, if, if you were drowning and there's this, this lifeguard and he pulls you out and he's got you out of the public swimming pool and he's doing CPR and, 
and, and, and, and, and when, you, when you wake up, you say, oh, I really nailed that being unconscious on the cement thing. Did you guys, uh, did you guys see that? I, uh, I mean, I did my bit, right? Huh. So the, the, the fact of the matter is that if you are being saved, by definition, you are not the, the one acting. You are being saved. You are at the mercy of a savior. And if you're a Christian, that is what you believe, that you are being saved. And then you cannot be arrogant about it. Not towards each other, not towards other Christians, not towards other uh, faith groups or, or atheists. It is something that is complete grace. Does that make sense? All right. Verse, uh, chapter 2, I just want to read uh, five verses, and then we, we're going to be done with our reading for the evening. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or, or, or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. I told you about the professional retroticians back in the day. Now, here's how they would typically start. They would go to a city like Corinth, and here's actually an extract of one of those speeches. This is from a guy called Favorinus, and he says this. When I first visited your great city, I gave you a sample of my eloquence, and we were on intimate terms subsequently. All right, so they refer to their eloquence and to how great the city is. Can you see how Paul is subverting that? He says, when I came to you, I didn't talk about my eloquence at all. The only thing I referred to was my weakness, much trembling. Can you see that humility, but that very deliberate humility in which he's coming? Are you guys with me? I, can't, I cannot actually see whether, whether people are nodding in approval. Um, so he's, he's subverting the sophistry of the day. But Paul is doing something else that is, that is really brilliant. Now, a lot of people have used this passage that we read to find a home for anti-intellectualism in the church, saying, ah, oh, you see, you've got God's wisdom, you've got the world's wisdom, God hates the philosophers, um, and the, the only wisdom that you have is within, within Scripture, and, and, and that's the only place where we can play. But uh, that's definitely not what, what's going on. Paul is being very, very sneaky in how he is setting up this, this whole speech of his. So, if, if I start a speech and I say, I have a dream. I have a dream that one day, who are you guys thinking of? Okay, so you guys know that I'm playing on an existing speech. Or maybe I say, we'll fight them on the... On the beaches, with an E. We'll fight them, we'll fight them on the beaches. And uh, then we know this is Winston Churchill, this is Second World War, this is Nazi stuff. And in South Africa, one that you guys should know is, it is an ideal for which I hope to live for and achieve, but if needs be, it is an ideal for which I am prepared to die. Who gave that speech? Mandela at his Ravonia trial. Now... These are some of the famous speeches in the world, and today if we, 
if, if, if we try to attach our speech or mimic those, those speeches, it would be very evident to, uh, to the people around us. Now, what Paul is doing is he has framed this, this passage, which is called a hymn to Christ. He has framed it in such a way that it is reminding everybody in the room of a guy called Pericles. And Pericles was this most famous orator of, of the Greek world who, who lived a couple of centuries before Paul. And what he did is he gave this famous oration at the end of the Peloponnesian War. I can see Daniel is getting excited there at, at the back. Um, at the end of the Peloponnesian War, where they did these famous funeral orations. And they, they would... Uh, they would ask a professional orator, and actually plenty of them, to just do an oration as to the heroics of these great Athenians who defended the, the city. And they would praise the fallen soldiers, etc., uh, etc. Et now, there is a correspondence. I, I, sorry if this is a little bit um, confusing, but there's a correspondence between Plato and a guy called Menexemus. And Plato reflects on these funeral orations, and he says the following. He says, O Menexemus, death in battle is certainly in many respects a noble thing. The dead man gets a fine and costly funeral, although he may have been poor, and uh, an elaborate speech is made over him by a wise man who has long ago prepared what he, was to, what he has to say. Although he who is praised may not have been good for much, the speaker's praise him for what he has done and for what he has not done. That is the beauty of them. And they steal away our souls with their embellished words. And they praise those who die in war. And all our ancestors who went before us. And they praise ourselves also who are still alive until I feel quite elevated in, by their laudations. And I become enchanted by them. And all in a moment I imagine myself to have become a greater and nobler and finer man than I was before. This consciousness of dignity lasts me more than three days, and not until the fourth or fifth day do I come to my senses and know where I am. In the meantime, I have been living in the island of the blessed. Such is the art of our rhetoricians, and in such manner does the sound of their words keep ringing in my ears. This is a very, very famous correspondence between Plato and Menexemus about these famous funeral, funeral orations. But here's the point. When Paul is saying, I didn't come to you with fancy words. I didn't come to you proclaiming, uh, what does he say here? Uh, among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified and weakness and fear and much trembling and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power and your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. What Paul is doing there is he's saying, you know how these funeral orations, the one of Pericles, the one that Plato is talking about, the one that is rife all over the Greco-Roman world, you know how those rhetoricians, those orators give meaning to something that is rather meaningless. You guys know how they do that. You guys know how they, the, the, the event itself is not necessarily what is meaningful, but the skillful oration that is being employed, that is what makes it special. The gospel is not like that at all. He is saying, when I preach Christ and him crucified, I am only pointing to the event in question. 
As for my delivery, I couldn't care less. There's nothing for me to elevate um, or, or to embezzle or to, to, to try and make this fancier than, than, than necessary. The only thing that I'm referring to is Jesus Christ and him crucified. I'm just referring to the gospel. Does that make sense? Are you guys with me? So he is subverting this very uh, famous Greek tradition of, of funeral oration. And I hope you guys can, can also just see how brilliantly Paul has constructed this argument, this part of his, his letter. And he's constantly saying, I didn't come in fancy words, I didn't do this, I didn't do that. But if you consider this, and I mean, I read a few commentaries on this, they are saying it's a little bit, Paul is a little bit like a Miss World contestant who's like super hot and she says, oh, you know what, beauty is not very important. It's like, oh, come on. Or Shakespeare saying, oh, you know what, like having elegant words and uh, lines and plays, it's not really important. Who cares about that? Um, he, is, he is dismissing it as important. And in the same time, he is just writing this literary masterpiece. As a matter of fact, I'm, I'm, I'm no uh, Greek scholar, but at, at one point he rhymes. This hymn, obviously in English we can't uh, uh, get it, but in Greek... It rhymes, and it's apparently very difficult to rhyme in Greek, and he manages to proclaim this thing where he's saying it's not about eloquence, it's not about being fancy, and he's rhyming all the way through. He's just showing off, actually. Um, but I, I have to try and emphasize that for Paul... The, the cross and the meaning of the cross, especially in, in, in this passage that we read, can be, can be summed up as the cross is strange that guys laid for church. The cross is humbling and the cross is real. The cross is strange, the cross is humbling, and the cross is real. Let's start with the last one, Real. What Paul is saying is, I'm not a follower of Jesus because somebody makes a nice speech and it, it feels cool. I'm not a follower of Jesus because I'm now the, the cool orator who gets an audience. I'm not a follower of Jesus because of the power, because of the sex, because of the money. Because I can promise you, in the first few centuries, there was no sex, no power, no money because of, of Christianity. And if those are the things that drive society, and that's what most people say, then there wasn't much of that within, within early Christianity. He is saying... I follow Jesus because that is really how the world is. Jesus was who he claimed to be. And by the way, if you were making up a, a religion, then to, in the first century, say you've invented this religion and uh, here's our God, he's crucified by this Roman instrument of torture. You're not doing a very good job. Nobody would have invented a religion like that. Secondly, it is humbling. The cross is humbling. Remember, you've got these factional fights within the church in Corinth where many people are excited. Ah, oh, I'm an Apollos guy. Other people say, oh, I'm a Paul guy. I'm a, a, a Peter guy. And th that line that they use, I'm this, I'm this, I'm this, is, is, is very similar to how the, the Corinthians would have spoken before about their gods. I'm for Athena, or I'm for Aphrodite, or I'm for this God or this God. So now they are relating to these guys who gave the message as if they were one of these 
uh, Greek gods within, within the pantheon. And, and Paul's saying, guys, you, you, you cannot boast about this. You cannot boast about how you access the, the gospel. It doesn't make sense. Uh, do we have any Stormers supporters here? People who, who support the Stormers. Now, I can imagine if you're a Stormers supporter, then today you can, you can boast. Um, and, uh, I mean, why, why do I always try with the sports analogies? But the, you, you, one, can, one, can, one can try and boast about your team winning. When the Springboks beat the All Blacks, even if it's just hypothetical, then, uh, th- then it's, it's nice when you meet a, a Kiwi to say, oh, we killed you guys, we nailed you, you guys didn't know what was going on, we were so much more physical than you, and our wings are j- just uh, embarrassed you. You can boast about that. But how do you boast in the cross? How do you boast? I, I, here's an attempt. This is what it would, would look like. Oh, you guys are such losers. Jesus died for me because I'm a selfish brat. And although I didn't deserve a thing, he saved me. I didn't do anything. As a matter of fact, I've done a lot not to be saved. Huh? Boom. Like, it, 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 doesn't, it doesn't make for a great rap song. It, it, is, it is something that, that happened to us, and we are in the grip of its grace. And if you are not humble about your your walk with God, and if the gospel does not humble you, then I'm afraid we haven't understood it properly. And then lastly, the cross is strange. From the very beginning, the claims and the lives of Christians were strange to the people around them. It was peculiar. They were a peculiar people. And the question that we need to ask today as we read this letter to the Corinthians as if it's the letter to the Praetorians. We need to ask ourselves, are we a peculiar people following a very strange Messiah? And I fear that if you look at our lives, friends, I think it looks very similar to our non-believing friends here in Pretoria. You won't really be able to, to draw a massive distinction. And what a shame, because we called to not only proclaim this strange news of the cross, but to live this strange news of the cross. So in other words, here's my question to us. Does our giving, our giving of money and our giving of time, does it look strange to the world? Do outsiders look at it and say, just you guys are quite radical, you guys are quite fanatical, that's a little bit irresponsible. What about our sex lives? People looking at the outside think, Wow, you guys are, are waiting for marriage. That's bizarre. Um, are, we, are we trying our best to, uh, to, 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 to live out the gospel, or are we just sort of submitting to the culture that is around us? What about conflict and forgiveness? Do we get angry and retaliate in the same way as the rest of, of the world? Do we forgive or not forgive the same way as the people around us? What about our unity that we have? And one of the things that the world really struggles with, and especially this country, is is reconciliation and uh, how to make this experiment work of, of having these different groups of people in the same country. Well, are we as 
a peculiar people following a strange Messiah, are we showing away? Do we have a peculiar type of unity here? The list goes on and on and on. I think we are confronted this evening with uh, something that a great theologian by the name of Donald Trump said. <laughs> and that is, we, let's make Christianity strange again. Let's make Christianity strange again. One of my favorite theologians is a guy called Stanley Havervas. And he, he, he says, as Christians, we're not giving the world enough to not believe in. I'm going to say that again. We're not giving the world enough to not believe in. Maybe the only thing that we do not give them to believe in is, oh, we believe Jesus rose from the dead. Okay, well, that's one thing. But we need to give them something to not believe in in terms of how we operate our finances, how we operate our bodies, how we operate our time, how we operate um, our communities, how we operate our thoughts, how we operate our reading, how we operate our recreational time. We need to give them a lot to not believe in. Paul is taunting this Roman, Greco-Roman world with this thing that is very difficult to believe in. <laughs> and he starts with it. I pre preach Christ and him crucified. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are humbled by, by your cross. We are humbled by the fact that, that it is something that we, although we often claim it for ourselves, it was, it was something that, that was sheer grace. And it is something that is sheer grace. And our prayer is, Lord, that we have this stupid interdenominational church fighting, especially in a place like Pretoria, Lord, that we will have no part in it, that we can celebrate diversity and that we can remind ourselves that your gospel is your gospel. And for us to take pride in, in how we access that is, 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 is very silly. Lord Jesus, we, we pray that, that we will live out the strangeness of the cross, the peculiarity of it all. And so often we just bow to the culture around us. But Lord, you ask us to live different lives. And you ask us to to live a life of meaning, not necessarily a life of comfort. I pray, Lord, that you will provoke something in all of us, make us uncomfortable in so many aspects of our lives and convict us of the things that need changing. Lord Jesus, as as scandalous as the cross was in the first century, 
might not be as scandalous today, but definitely living it out would be equally scandalous. And it is our prayer that by worldly standards, we will be a scandalous community. But Lord, that we will hold on to the wisdom of God and not to the wisdom of this world. Thank you, Jesus, for the cross. Thank you that we can hold it up here in Pretoria. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.